Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, whose time is ticking on his visa in sunny, beautifully radiant Oakland. Today we are joined by Paul Dudridge, John Goodison, Erica Andrade, Duke View. In a week that has seen England sail into the knockout phase of the European Championships, we look at British politics and the upset that was in Amersham. They could have invented the phrase true blue for places like Chesham and Amersham in Buckinghamshire. Invincible green suburbs, genteel as can be, even in the June rain. Lib Dem Sarah Green took the seat last night on one of the biggest swings seen to the party in the last 30 years. Green Sarah Louise of the Liberal Democrat Party is duly elected. They were right to be jubilant. It was a serious win. The constituency had a Tory majority of over 12 in 2019. There was a 25% swing from Conservative to Lib Dem last night, translating to a new Lib Dem majority of over 8,000. The Lib Dems partly did it via Conservative switches, but also by squeezing the votes of other parties, especially Labour, whose vote was reduced to negligible levels. You know what happens when a really powerful, strong orange force goes against a blue wall? For its leader, Ed Davey. Much criticised. It is a lifeline. Finally, his party is dangerous again. In the UK, the Liberal Democrats pulled off a shock by-election victory, overturning a 16,000 majority in a seat that has always voted Conservative. The party's candidate, Sarah Green, won by some 8,000 votes from the Conservatives, and the Green Party came in in third place. Labour had its worst by-election result in the party's history, with only 622 votes. Steve O'Neill, you know a lot about Lib Dem politics. What does this all mean? You say I'm a bit of an estranged Lib Dem, but I'm on Lib Dem Twitter still. And the sort of feeling there is that this is the first bit of good news for a while. One person said if we were 
for a decade. What this is all about is the realignment of British politics with a number of seats. I've heard the estimate about 53 seats that have been true blue conservative for ages are now thinking or or have characteristics that might send them towards the more progressive parties. And mostly that's the Lib Dems who have a chance of overturning Tory MPs there. There are plenty as well where Labour might have a good chance and the Greens could make some local gain, gains too. The Lib Dems do have a history, or the Liberal Party, do have a history of by-election upsets. Isn't this just one of those? And when we come to the general election, it'll go back to the status quo. Yeah, yes and no. You're absolutely right. Historically, from Orpington, I think, is the most famous one. But there's many others. Lib Dems or what was in the Liberals used to do very well in by-elections because they campaign on local issues. So in Chesham and Amersham, it was HS2, the big new railway line, and local planning reforms that the Conservative government is trying to push in. So, yes, it's a big factor. However, the, there is this realignment where there's these seats that kind of went remain last time that have more graduates in the most seats. And that is what makes them more interesting. So the truth is, other seats that look a bit like Cheshire and Amersham, and that is, are quite safe Tory, they probably won't go at a general election. But Cheshire and Amersham was way down the list of those that could change. And so I think it's a bit of both. I do think the Tories are going to lose seats in the South uh, at some Paul, point. Soon. should the Conservative parties and Boris Johnson in particular be worried? Worried? No. I mean, I think Boris described it as disappointing. It is. It it's, needs to be addressed, but... I think what Steve's saying is true. There is a realignment in British politics. And, you know, you now are seeing the traditional work. I mean, Batley and Spen next week, if we want to be really nerdy, is going to be the, an equal barometer of the, of the temperature in the, or the pressure, rather, for a barometer in British politics. Because if that remains Labour, that will be a complete fluke because nobody's expecting it to. But if it falls to the Tories... Then, then that's going to be that's going to be very, very telling. I basically, I just think the South is becoming entrenched in more kind of liberal politics, and the North is embracing uh, more traditional conservative politics. Something that was kind of unthinkable until Brexit, really. And so, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely. I mean, I, I think if you look at 2019 with the general election. I think I've got a feeling the Labour gain was only, there was only like one Labour gain. In yeah, it's one or two. It? Yeah. I could be wrong. Something like that. Oh, Putney, yeah. wasn't it? Putney. I, I can't see that they can be worried about it too much. They need to address it and it's inevitable. It's too granular to talk about the local planning issues in HS2 going through. But that's also been a very, very hotly contested local issue. The problem the Lib Dems have got, I don't know whether Steve will agree with this, is that they have the money. The reason I think that they are so successful in by-elections is because they can concentrate all their limited resources on one territory at a time. When it comes to a general election, they're always going to be trounced because they do not have the resources to be able to compete nationally. In fact, you know, I was listening to Radio 4, uh, any questions, any answers after the after this result. And a number of people were phoning in from Chesham and saying that they voted Lib Dem. And it's like, what would you vote in a general election? Oh, Conservative, you know. So the, the picture is not as concrete as it, uh, it initially appears. But I do think actually Chesham and Amersham will probably remain, I mean, with a, yeah. I think it's a 25% swing or something, one of the largest ever. I think it's going to remain Lib Dem. Look, what's happened is, is people like the Brexit Party and the UKIPs, you know, as far as the South are concerned, Brexit is settled. I think as far as the North are concerned, 
Brexit is still going to play a part because I think there's a fear among working class communities that somehow it's going to be we're going to be dragged back into some kind of uh, EU alliance. Yeah, I think that the realignment is uh, well underway. Th- th- thanks for that, Paul. Steve, what does this really say about brand Boris? I, I can't quite get my head around it. If I, if I look at the press from over here in, in the US, he seems to be somewhat resurgent in, in, his, in his popularity. I know that the Tories did bring some of their big beasts to Chesham and, and Amersham, but this spectacularly failed for the party. Is this just a tiny little bit of local difficulty? And then on to Paul's point, are we seeing a massive realignment of British politics? And if we are, and the Labour Party loses Batley and Spen, what next for Keir Starmer? So quite a few there. On Bram Boris, so you look at national polls, yeah, he's doing better than he was. But I spoke to former sort of Blue Wall MP David Gork a week before last. And one of the things that he said is that he thinks Boris is unpopular in the South. The South likes sort of the moderate sort of Cameron managerial type of conservative or other or other sort of politician. It doesn't like Boris's brand. I think or I suspect that's a much stronger brand up in the red wall seats up north that the Conservatives are taking off Labour like, like Betley and Sven. In terms of the rest of British politics, I think it's I think it's really interesting because it, it's not like loads of really hyper progressive graduates are flooding out of London and are suddenly changing these seats into London type seats where they're gonna vote for very kind of hyper progressive MPs. What's going to have to happen if you're going to flip Tories out of those seats is a sort of combination of appealing enough to those kind of graduate types, but also flipping what pollsters call Tory Remainers, so people who voted Remain, who are soft conservative and could be persuaded away from the party that they see as becoming a bit populist, disrespecting the rule of law and also taking them for granted and focusing only on the red wall. Uh, Paul, does that make any kind of sense to you? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, you know, David Gork... To be honest, I wouldn't take too much, as he says, as being objective analysis. I mean, he has got an axe to grind with Boris, but I think the analysis ultimately is perfectly correct. As I said, it's all slightly a moot point because, you know, Thatcher only had like, I think, a 49 majority in the 1979 election. And I mean, you know, Boris has come in with an 80. At the first time, there's been that kind of majority for quite a while. I think the buffer zone that he has means that he's got extraordinary latitude to be able to actually do things. And I, I think that he actually is. I think he's perceived largely by the core of Conservative voters as actually doing a good job. But I completely agree. I, I think particularly the Conservative Remain voters that Steve's talking about, he's absolutely right about. And I think that they are particularly neutral, if you like, about Brexit in the South. When you're starting a run with an 80 majority, practically double what Thatcher started with, I think that there's some wiggle room for even the most unpopular prime minister. That's the big strategic point, though, is that if we're ever going to get a government that's not a conservative government, they're probably going to have to take seats. Yes, in the red wall, Labour will have to, but someone will also have to take southern seats too, because now Scotland is pinched as well and unlikely to go entirely Labour again for what seems a very long time. So the big point is that if, if Labour or the Lib Dems start taking tens of southern seats, it starts to really change that equation. That's why it's a really important thing rather than just a, a one-week news story. It's a big realignment that could happen if the Progressive parties are up to it. 25% is a huge swing. Those conservative southern constituencies all share, 
I think, fears about loosening of the planning regulations, making it more difficult for locals to be able to object to new uh, housing, for instance, and new building. So the Cheshire and Amersham is so specifically about HS2 and planning. I wonder if like 50% of that swing is down to one of those aspects. No, listen, I think you make a good point. The Conservatives, because they're getting resistance from their own parliamentary party, they'll probably tighten up or finally tighten up planning regulations so that they don't become quite as laissez-faire. And I think that's going to satisfy a great deal of those Conservative voters. And again, you know, they've changed the voting. Um, you know, Boris can call an election at any time. We've gotten rid of the fixed five-year Parliament Act as well. So he's, he is always in a position to be able to get any kind of bounce again in the next couple of years coming out of COVID or whatever to be able to pick his moment. So I, I don't know how effective any, any resistance is going to actually be. Truth is, we don't know. For the, you know, is it local issues are driving it, or is it national issues? I'm going on my gut. I'm from Surrey, and seats near me are sort of starting to get into that red wall, sorry, blue wall category. And my gut instinct is that people there are not quite as solid conservatives as you might think. And when people start feeling like they've been taken for granted, I do think it comes up for grabs. I get it. You make a good point. You know, and, and we do have incredible recently. volatility, don't we, in British politics? The fact that Boris Johnson and the Tories won as big as they did, as you've said, Paul, with such a thumping majority, was a a, a massive surprise as to how big that was. And then in the last election, the Labour Party, even though uh, they lost it overperformed. So we kind of don't really know what the hell is going on in British politics. I, I think the safest thing to say is that we are seeing some some massive uh, realignment. And I think, again, to your point, Paul, that Batley and Spen will reveal possibly the fate of not only uh, Keir Starmer, but at least the, the Labour Party for the, the next two or three years. Let's just end up by talking about the Labour Party. Uh, Steve, obviously, Batley and Spen in the good old days would be a total gimme for the Labour Party, part of its red wall. If the Labour Party loses this badly, what does he say about the leadership of Keir Starmer? What does he say about the Labour Party going forward? It says that Labour Party have big problems because their coalition, and, we, and we've talked about this, I think, you know, to death a bit now, but their coalition is split badly between sort of left-leaning people on the economy who are quite socially conservative in seats like Batley and Spen and sort of a sort of hyper-liberal people in the, in places like London and the cities. It's a big strategic problem. I don't think this is particularly Keir Starmer's fault, although he's not had a great few months and he's not really putting his stamp on things. The problem he's got, and he may not be able to get away from, is that a narrative is going to start to take hold about him if he starts losing these seats. But and Steve, that might surely him now and, and Keir Starmer really has been in, in opposition for about a year now. And the one thing that she hasn't done is to clearly define a vision of what a Labour-run Britain would actually be. There isn't a clear vision, is there? Not yet, there's not. And I've been kind of giving him, a, as you know, on this podcast, a bit of a pass because it's been a pandemic. He had to do a, not a complete rebrand, but he had to do a kind of moving on from the Corbyn period and what happened in 2019. So I kind of, I gave him a bit of a pass and I still think I'd give him six more months to do it. But it is starting to be a bit like, a, you know, the, the tumbleweed is blowing by a little bit. And we're starting to think, when is the moment where he's going to announce himself? And I think it's got to happen soon. Benefit the Doubt says that he's waiting until we are firmly on the other side of the pandemic and then he can start with things i'm starting to doubt that he really has has 
a vision lined up. But I'd, I'd give him six more months. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. Keir Starmer's got like a Herculean, almost impossible task to bring together all the disparate parts of the Labour Party. You can sort of see the same fractures in the Democrats in the US. You've got basically extreme progressives being needed to be satisfied. Otherwise, the whole party will split again. People forget that Corbyn actually did really well against Theresa May or unexpectedly well against Theresa May by going into 2017 promising to honour the referendum result. And then they went into 2019 basically saying, because of Keir Starmer's pressure and threatening to leave, basically saying that they're pretty much approving of a second referendum, a vote and then a second referendum, etc. And that lost the trust of working class communities. He went to Hartlepool just a few weeks ago for a by-election, ran a, a Remainer, an ardent Remainer in a Labour seat and uh, got trounced. Brexit is still going to be an issue because working class communities do not trust Labour until they ex- explicitly and expressly come out supporting Brexit and everything that uh, emanates from that. Labour can't because they feel they will lose their progressive wing. This is the dichotomy that he's got. And it's, it's going to remain benefit uh, from I completely uh, that agree kind of dilemma. Uh, with the, the latter part uh, of your statement there, but disagree with the, uh, with the first bit. The Democrats in, in the US know how to win elections. It's something the Labour Party hasn't done for some, what, 11 years. But on that note, if you are uh, listening and you'd like to chime in, this is your time to hold your hand up and to jump up on stage. Otherwise, we'll move on to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rulings and what they mean for the US. Jennifer, uh, welcome. Make your point. This is quite granular level of politics, but um, just Paul and Steve, I'm American, but I've lived in the UK now for 11 years. I don't feel like I can contribute much because I just don't know enough of the detail that you guys are going into, but it sounds like this would be a good place to come to ask about what I personally feel, and which has personally impacted me in a big way, is Brexit. I can't get an answer from my conservative friends here in the UK of where the benefit is at all. Like they can't actually give me a straight answer. They just seem to be towing the party line. And I keep saying, well, where is it? Where is it? Where's this benefit you guys are all talking about? I don't see it because all I see is complications, things getting more expensive, you know, problems, problems, problems. And it's impacted me because I'm here due to being uh, European status. So Yes. Explain to me where the benefit is of this, please, from a conservative point of view that I would like to see with actual facts, like backed up, because no one, I mean, my conservative friends are quite intelligent. Paul, over to you. I mean, look, if you're um, rich and well-educated and a high-skilled job, yeah, fabulous. It's wonderful to have the European Union or to be a member of the European Union with all its labour laws. If you're low-skilled and low-income, You've actually, for the very first time in a decade, seen your wages increase. Now, not enough people care about the low skilled and the uh, low income, but I do. And that's why I voted Brexit. And that's, to me, an absolute definite benefit of Brexit. I mean, I don't know if that's that's going to be substantial enough, but that's just on a pure nuts and bolts. You're asking about what are the benefits? The benefits are the lowest down the bottom rung of the ladder actually had their life improved and they weren't being held back. Now, these are reports made by the government. These are reports reported widely on the BBC. I'll put uh, links up on my uh, Instagram or whatever if anybody wants to see. But it's an accepted fact. And the problem is, is this Marie Antoinette, no, no aspersions, this Marie Antoinette approach we've had to the economy where it's kind of, look, 
let them eat cake. We'll just let, let the poor people compete for scarcity of uh, resources, housing, schools, doctors, etc. Because we can all elevate ourselves and not have to thrash around with the oi polloi. For a change, the oi polloi actually had a say and they've actually increased their income. Pressure on schools is actually going to be reduced on a, on a political, philosophical level. Parliament could not instigate laws. It could only vote on laws that were proposed by an unelected commission that was appointed by member governments. To not be able to vote my commissioner in or out, I think, was the fatal flaw with the EU constantly with democracy. And they debated this in 93 about whether or not they should have directly elected commissioners so that we at least felt part of the democratic process. As we didn't, for me, that was just the end of it. The very fact that my own parliament in Europe couldn't actually propose legislation is, is Paul, the end of the uh, game I, for me. I, I don't see how if we only left the EU on January the 1st, we can actually say that materially unskilled labour is now better off financially. Well, no, hang on, you can't just say that. For National Farmers Union 2016, the minute the vote happened... The minute the vote happened, unskilled immigration actually began to drop immediately. And every figure points to that. And when you have a scarcity of labour, the price of labour goes up. And so those people benefited for the first time. But I agree we don't Listen, care uh, about that because we're rarefied. We absolutely do care about this. And what we're going to have to do is come back to this on another time because we spent... Um, 30 minutes on the good old uh, United Kingdom, which is definitely 15 more minutes than we normally do on, on this programme. We need to move to the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court basically said is, if you apply our reasoning here for uh, educational benefits to name, image and likeness or to, to frankly, to pay, uh, how, is the, how is the NCAA going to justify uh, its position on that. They're not going to be able to do it, or at least they don't see a way that they can do it. Uh, they're going to have to prove that they're not anti-competitive, and they're going to have a difficult time doing it, and I don't think they can. And you know, look, Justice Kavanaugh uh, wrote something that I think a lot of us have been saying for a long time. If you applied this to any other industry, it would be per se illegal and struck down immediately. The NCAA has been found in courts around the country and twice now by the Supreme Court to be a serial antitrust violator. And, and that's beyond discussion. That, that's fact that the NCAA no longer is going to get protection from the courts. They're going to be like every other multi-billion dollar business. And they're going to have to stop violating federal antitrust law. The Supreme Court is on its home stretch in a year which it's seen all of its cases uh, adjudicated by Zoom because of the pandemic. The justices have decided several notable cases and will issue a wave of rulings in the next few weeks before they break for summer. What I do want to focus on in particular is the Mahoney School District versus BL, which is a school district's decision to suspend student BL from the cheerleading team and the National Collegiate Athletic Association ruling. Brother AB, could you uh, start us off in, in, in this round, sir? What has the Supreme Court been up to? Which are the rulings specifically which you think are being the most significant? Hello, everyone. So starting off, we've actually had quite a few Supreme Court decisions come out in this month in particular. 
So the one you're speaking of, Mahoney Area School District versus BL, in this decision, the court extended its protection of student speech to social media, ruling that a Pennsylvania school district overstepped its authority by punishing a high school cheerleader who used a vulgar word on Snapchat when she didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. Essentially, what happened is, and we had one dissenter, one justice dissent, who was uh, Clarence Thomas, but this was a, for the most part, a majority vote by the uh, Supreme Court that ruled in favor of the student who, because she's against her school while off campus, that she was protected in her speech. So I guess this, what this does is not only extend protections of student speech to social media, but makes it very clear uh, using precedent that's already been set that essentially if you are off campus, you're you're allowed to you know have your free speech protected because uh, schools are thought to be the essentially the uh, the creators of, of of free speech liberal democracy. I mean another case that we had the NCAA, which was an antitrust case. Uh, it was a 9-0 decision. The justices unanimously ruled that the strict NCAA limits on compensating college athletes violates U.S. antitrust laws. And uh, it's going to have a lot of ramifications for the future college sports and will essentially open the door even more for uh, college student compensation and allowing them to have benefits from this multi-billion dollar sports. Uh, Duke, first off, tell us about these amateur collegiate uh, athletic stars working for this multi-billion dollar uh, corporation. So the ruling is not as expansive as many would hope it's limited to a number of education related benefits and the fact that the ncaa can't prohibit its member schools from providing um, these benefits such as post-grad internships scholarships for grad school laptops musical instruments it was it did not involve cash payments which is something that you know, is the crux of the conversation for the vast majority of people. The reality of the NCAA is that a lot has changed in the last, you know, 30 plus years since television deals became a bigger and bigger part of their ability to raise revenue in collegiate sports. We've seen a dramatic change in how much money comes in with men's basketball, men's football, and to a lesser degree, women's basketball. That's where the vast majority of the revenue is being generated in American collegiate sports. So the amateurism issue has like become a topic of a conversation, but mostly this ruling was an antitrust one, and it was specifically just on these like education-related benefits. And, you know, the the interesting part to me is that the legal test applied in this at Gorsuch's address is the rule of reason. The NCAA contended that like there should be some less stringent test, but the court argued they control the entirety of the market because these kids don't really have any other option but to be part of the NCAA. Erica, us liberals kind of chafing against this 6-3 court. But if you're actually looking at a lot of these rulings, they've been uh, 9-0-8-1. They've been pretty unanimous. The Supreme Court seems to be working, doesn't it? So far, I guess, because none of these cases actually involved or highlighted Justice Barrett's 
But there is a case where she did make a difference, and I believe that one came out as well, but that's not receiving a lot of speculation to date. The Arthrax case, which was also released, that in that case, her appearance in place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg did make a difference, but that's not what we're talking about today. But yes, regardless, in the case of the cursing cheerleader and the NCAA antitrust suit, no, it didn't make a difference. And for the majority was not. It held on cases of the antitrust and free speech. Of note, I should say, with the cheerleader case, I thought it was interesting because it doesn't undeniably quantify that free speech is protected in social media. There were very specific points to this. The point in, in this case was that while she used to post in Snapchats where she had vulgar language, they were not directed, the school was not named, and it was not directed at a specific teacher or student in the photo. It was in general, which is an extension of what set the precedent for uh, schools and with Tinker v. Des Moines from 1969. There is one point that I think is worth uh, noticing and looking out for the future when the NCAA had left it out was paying attention to Title IX. And Title IX is, you know, best known for requiring like athletic administrations to provide equal opportunities to male and female students. And in this ruling, it's made it to where it would be hard for a football school or a basketball school like to compete with other schools that are recruiting unless they're providing these like you know other benefits that aren't just purely room and board and tuition so financially it might be they might be running afoul of title nine because of how the money is distributed title nine doesn't require a school to pay spend the exact amount of money on women and men however like it requires a bit of you know substantially proportionate opportunities between the two and so i we have to look forward to the office of civil rights at the u.s department of education which enforces title nine like will they provide any type of advisory opinion to assist the ncaa to comply with title nine while you know providing these benefits to these revenue generating sports like the big problem with this is that you know, football teams are 85 scholarships and there's not a woman's equivalent sport that has that many athletes and that many players and that many scholarships. And there's no equivalent that generates that amount of revenue. So it's been a delicate balance to try to proportionately provide the same amount of opportunities in the past has resulted in a lot of Olympic men's sports being eliminated, whether it was like you know, wrestling programs, swimming programs, or, you know, soccer teams being taken away. And in because there's just so much money spent on football to, you know, balance the books, if you will, on providing equal opportunity. So we might see an interesting situation going forward with schools needing to spend more on the revenue athletes and what impact it has on the other sports and how it deals with Title IX. Also, if I may just chime in this real quick, I think one of the most interesting things that come out of the case 
because this was a largely the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor like this. It was, it was not along party lines at all. They actually attacked the NCAA's business model directly and that the uh, argument that the NCAA has been using for decades about protecting the spirit of amateurism and that in, in the uh, back in March, when the oral arguments that uh, an NCAA attorney had, attorney had made was that in defense of his business model was that fans prefer watching unpaid players. And in response, Justice Kavanaugh actually wrote that he believed that the NCAA is uh, not above the law because it is price-fixing labor. And that, you know, given examples that all the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cook to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Hospitals cannot agree to cut nurses' income in, in order to prove create a pure form of helping the sick and all of this you know is price fixing labor is price fixing labor and so it, it's it's interesting to see how this decision could have ripple effects even in other other industries regarding any form of antitrust or collusion of price fixing labor as a brit coming to america the one thing which utterly shocked me was the the status of college sports men and women in that they don't even own their own image rights that the the NCAA can license games, license shirts with their the names of these sportsmen on their backs, with their likenesses within them, and they make money off that. And those students, individuals can't, you know, just just utterly beggared belief for me. And any ruling which goes to chip away at that, however it's framed, has just got to be something which is uh, reasonable, equitable in 2021. Frank Anthony, you held your hand up uh, to come up on stage. Do you have something to contribute? Yeah, well, maybe you guys already talked about this, or maybe you don't want to get into this, but I was wondering about your opinions on the Supreme Court ruling earlier this week, I believe, that was essentially against child slavery and this was against nestle and cargill and an accusation of child slavery i'm sure erica knows about it so if you want to take over i was wondering your opinions about the results of that case while they ruled in favor of they didn't address they dismissed and what the court often does is refuse to rule on the underlying cause because there was nothing in dispute in in the facts of the case but they did not rule on whether or not human rights violations actually on that matter itself and the implications all over the world, because as you know, this was overseas. So I hope that answers your question, but that that's what I'm guessing is the essential core of what you're asking, the human rights aspect. Well, so I have a question on this too, and this is going to point out my ignorance to it, but I'm trying to learn more. There was a similar case under the Obama administration or under Obama Supreme Court a few years ago with a company called Dromond that was, I believe they were mining coal in Colombia. Basically, this company had hired paramilitaries, I think the FARC, in Colombia. They hired these paramilitaries to kill union leaders. Like, couldn't they cite this alien tort statute. Yeah, I think, like Erica has said, that this case was not so much decided on on the details of it. It was mostly due to the standing and that they said they just can't be sued in U.S. courts for this. Now, this is not a judgment on whether or not Nestle is absolved of their responsibility in the matter. It's just that they just can't be sued in U.S. courts. Now, the question is, like, where... Can they be sued in? Are they going to be sued in Mali courts or some form of international court body? Now, that's probably the next step 
to figure out. And now we're going to move on to our third topic, which is looking at the election uh, results in Iran and what does it mean for Middle East politics. And also, we're going to run the rule over the election in Ethiopia. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The big story coming out of West Asia, Iran has now elected its new president. Ultra-conservative cleric Ibrahim Raisi takes over the second highest office in Iran. Supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has offered his congratulatory messages to his protege and the president-elect, calling it a victory over evil propaganda. The great winner of yesterday's election is the Iranian nation because it has risen up once again in the face of the propaganda of the enemy's mercenary media. Resi won over 60% of the votes polled and emerged victorious in the high-stakes race. A while ago, incumbent President Hassan Rouhani offered his congratulations to his successor. Kamani's protege has won the election in Iran amid a historic low turnout. Only just over 50% of eligible voters even bothered to turn up. John Goodison, what does this tell us about future West and Iranian relations with this new president? You know, Royfield, I like the way that you characterize Mr. Raisi when you introduce him as the potential successor to the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, because that's the most important thing about Mr. Raisi. It's not that he's been elected president of Iran, I don't think. I think that often the Western media depicts the Iranian presidency as being an office of much importance and consequence. And while it's not irrelevant, and it does certainly matter, it is not the that true center of power the in the Iranian leader. system. Yes, absolutely. The supreme leader, who is currently Ali Khamenei, only the second to have ever served after the original supreme leader, Ali Khomeini is the decider on matters of Iranian John, I, I tell you what, decisions. Just, and just quickly, the most John, important right, because, other um, you're, you're right to point out that 
this to Western sensibilities is a little bit kind of confusing. So give us the kind of the constitutional makeup, but very, very quickly. First off, how exactly is Iran? Sure, Rochelle. So Iran is a theocracy. The leader of the country is a theocrat, a ayatollah, a religious cleric who is also the political leader of the country. The other very important institution in in the Iranian system is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which is a military arm of great consequence. And the recently deceased leader of the National Guard, Qasem Soleimani in particular, elevated that organ to being a central organ of the state, having a large degree of control, really, over Iranian foreign policy. However, there is also a civilian president which is elected by popular vote. Iran allows women to vote. It allows people of ages 16 and older to vote. However, the impact of their vote is somewhat limited by the restrictions of the office and by the fact that all candidates who run in Iranian elections must be approved by the theocratic authorities, which greatly limits the degree of competition and participation in the Iranian political system. So how important is this election result? And and what will it mean to uh, future treaties? Rushfield, I think the way that you originally characterized Mr. Raisi is exactly correct, as we discussed, that his role as a potential successor to the Supreme Leader is probably why this election is most important. There is an interest within the Iranian system of elevating Mr. Raisi into someone of credibility and popularity. That does not appear to be achieved yet because of the low turnout in the election, as you indicated, and also because of Mr. Raisi's association with abuses against the Iranian people. However, there is the idea that if a new JCPOA deal with Western countries can be achieved quickly before Mr. Raisi comes in office in August, any blame for poor negotiating can be placed on his predecessor and any credit for the economic advantages of removed sanctions will go to Mr. Raisi. So there is a plan perhaps to use his elevation into this office as a, a few years ago, I think it's about three years ago, there was a lot of civil disturbance in Iran. What's happened to that and what's happened uh, to the opposition? I think that the people of Iran generally do not have a large degree of confidence in the current system. However, there is not a large degree of international support for domestic opposition. Many in the American political landscape blamed the U.S. government at the time for not doing more to promote and support the efforts of opposition figures. Many believe that this was because the U.S. government so heavily prioritized the interest in reaching an agreement with the Iranian government at the time. I think that today, many in the Iranian political landscape, many ordinary citizens have taken a almost uh, dejected attitude towards the Iranian political system, one of resignation. It's interesting to see how demographic trends in Iran have shifted very much over the years. Today, less than half of the people of Iran in certain polls even identify as being observant Shia Muslims, which puts the persistence of a theocratic regime very much into question. But it is not at a time today that we can really predict a breakup or a shift because, again, we we see the authorities in Iran maintain a grip on power despite protests and other is events like the ones that you to say that the Revolutionary Guard is the most important kind of linchpin other than the, the you know, the theocratic rule of, of the mullahs in basically keeping this regime alive. I think that that is probably correct. 
And it is interesting that the current Supreme Leader is quite elderly. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about the state of his personal health. And there's been a lot of speculation about what the succession plan might be. But he is in quite advanced years. And I think that as the country has become more secular, as he's become more old, perhaps the balance of power between him and the Revolutionary Guard has shifted in favor of the Revolutionary Guard within the Iranian system. So if we move from Tehran to Addis Ababa, has gone to the polls claiming that democracy is strong in Ethiopia. And this is amidst elections where at least four out of the 10 constituent provinces didn't actually have the ability to, to vote, whether it's because of civil conflict. How legitimate will that result be in Ethiopia if four of the 10 provinces couldn't even cast a ballot? Yes, I think this is a fascinating and very important story, Redfield. This election was originally viewed with great promise and expectation, but by the time it was held, it was, as you said, against a backdrop of armed conflict, fragmentation, and great international concern. Abiy Ahmed, the gentleman that you refer to, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, is the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a figure of enormous global consequence, but he has never yet been elected with a mandate from the public. Uh, he was handed power in an internal decision by the authorities in Ethiopia at the time in an effort to what they hoped would mollify the large Romo minority, which is, in a plurality sense, the largest constituent group in the country. However, he has not yet been elected. And this election was meant to validate his agenda for the country, which was originally perceived as being one of progress, political liberalism, reconciliation between ethnic groups, but is today characterized or was hopefully being characterized in anticipation of the vote as perhaps the first free and fair election in the history of Ethiopia. But instead, now, as the vote finally occurs, not only is his own reputation in doubt, but there are questions about the legitimacy of the election, as you said. The election was twice delayed. It was originally scheduled to be held nearly a year ago in September. The official explanation for the delay was the COVID pandemic. But we should note that it also came on the heels of the killing of a popular singer and uh, icon of the Oromo population named Handessa. And this sparked a large-scale political unrest, uh, riots, protest movement, in which hundreds of people have been acknowledged to have been killed. After the election was delayed, another major domestic disturbance sparked when armed conflict broke out in the northern region of Tigray, which was, until recently, the dominant political center of the country. The Tigray are only 6% of the population, but they completely dominated Ethiopia's political landscape for 30 years. When they handed off power to Abiy, they thought that he would be a friendly compatriot and that they could maintain something of the status quo. But he quickly ostracized them. And after he delayed the vote in September, they held their own unauthorized election. And they also are claimed to have attacked some military facilities inside of Tigray. And this led to what is really not only a civil war, but an international conflict because of the participation of Eritrean soldiers in Tigray fighting against the Tigray TPLF leadership. So Tigray is not participating in this vote at all. Two other regions or three other regions, as you mentioned, including Harar, the Somali region, their vote did not occur this week either. It's been postponed until September. The vote in Tigray is not scheduled at all. And in the Oromia region, which John, we just talked about John, a minute ago, let, let me jump uh, in. where the large scale protests occurred. We didn't talk about occurred. it. You did, sir. Yeah. You're doing a masterclass as always. <laughs> as uh, you were. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the last thing I'll just wrap up very quickly then 
in the Aramayo region, although the vote was scheduled, this, the major opposition parties boycotted it. They didn't participate in the vote. So they are also hoping to, to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the outcome of this election, which we haven't seen yet, but we can predict is going to be very favorable to Abi and the Prosperity Party. So, you know, a year ago, we were hoping that this election would be the first free and fair election in Ethiopian history, that it would validate the mandate of someone who would bring Ethiopia into the future, political liberalization, economic liberalization. But today, the country is in this fragmented state, a state of war in some areas, political unrest. Last question on this topic before we move to any other news. Duke, why is Ethiopia now making the news? Why is Ethiopia so important in terms of not just regional African affairs, but in global affairs? The reason Ethiopia tends to be, as of right now, a really important player in the global market is how rapidly Ethiopia has grown in the last 10 years. It is, you know, growing at a rate that is incredible for the African continent. And it has become a global player economically with investments from China. And you're looking at a growing power that, you know, is trying to find its feet and growing in its influence, like being the headwaters of the Nile and having issues downstream with building a large dam. And so there's a lot of factors that are happening in Ethiopia that are drawing the attention of other nation states. And it's hard to ignore, you know, the economic success of the country over the last decade. So we're, we've been recording for about an hour now. So we're going to quickly go on to any other news. Ab, go for it, sir. So this is a bit of news that actually came out today. So for all my football aficionados, UEFA has actually announced that they are now doing away with the away goals rule, which I believe the spirit of it was to, which was first established in 1965, was that you used to determine a winner that when teams were on level on aggregate after a two-legged match, the team that had more scored more goals on the away side were awarded the victory. But it's come under scrutiny over, over, over some time in the last couple of years because of the fact that it, it puts an incentive on or dis, it disincentivizes home teams from being able to be aggressive because the, 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 the consequences of giving up a goal would then hurt them. Uh, so in, especially and in, in this, you see this also happening in extra time as well. So instead of playing defense, instead of playing offensive football, they're playing more the defensive approach to try to just, you know, kill time and make sure that they don't give up a goal. But so this essentially now the rule will, if they are, if two teams are tied, that the, it will now be replaced by extra time and penalties to decide the winner. I'm going to lament the passing of the away goals rule. Initially, it was brought in in the 1960s and European football had been a thing across Europe since the 1950s because international travel was so rare that what was happening is, let's say, uh, Real Madrid would go to play in Munich and they would lose 4-1. And then in the return fixture, when when Bayern Munich would then come to Real Madrid, Real Madrid would win 5-1 because international travel was so rare in the 50s and the 60s, but then also that players weren't conditioned for international travel. So there were these wild swings of results. That is not now the case. And, and, and that home away advantage has been much more equalized with European sport. But we can see it within any domestic sport the the home field team generally 
has an advantage against the away team. So, the, so for me, there still is an in, there still should be an incentive for that away team to come out and and to be rewarded if they do score a goal. But I completely understand that the the landscape of European football has completely changed from the nineteen fifties and sixties when there were these crazy scores swings depending on which team was home and away because. It, this would be literally be the first time that players had even got on a plane, let alone managers and trainers even knowing how long to keep them in that country before playing a game, the proper rest period, et cetera, et cetera. All that's out the window. And of course, it's hyper-professional. But Duke, you're also a footballer and you, and you followed the beautiful game. What do you reckon to this news? Royfield, I've lamented somewhat like you. I worry about... <laughs> Clubs that are known for parking the bus, if you will, for the American audience, that parlance isn't something that's common, but there's some clubs and are known for just sitting in front of the goal and like playing very defensively. And the away goals rules was very punishing to home squads that like just park the bus in front of their crowd and use their crowd advantage and like. You know, if the away team scored, it was such a like a powerful thing to happen. And so I worry that it, like in this scenario that like there's an incentive to park the bus at home and on the road. And there's not some like additional punishment for teams that like choose to engage in such behavior and anti-attacking behavior when they're playing away. So kind of curious how it plays out but yeah the field dimensions have become standardized and you know the pitch quality has become standardized and traveling has you know dramatically improved but i wonder if this incentivizes clubs from making super narrow pitches or shortening the length of the field in different matches to give some type of advantage to their home squad and i'm kind of curious how that may play out John? In some of the decision-making going forward. Yeah, I just wanted to say that if UEFA is reconsidering rules that they have in place that incentivize playing for draws, something pretty topical that they might want to reconsider is the rule that allows third-place teams from the group stage to advance into the knockout stage of the Euros tournament, which I think very strongly incentivizes playing for draws because it's possible for a team to advance while getting three draws, theoretically. And I think that we are seeing this pattern very much in the way that this tournament, the current Euros tournament, has unfolded, where the early games have been quite dull, and there haven't been very many goals, the first two games of the group stage. And then on the final day of the group stage, when teams knew that they had to get a specific result in order to advance, we saw much more interesting games with much more goals scored. So it seems that very clearly that third place advance possibility is encouraging this kind of defensive play that they're trying to discourage John, the Champions League away the games England game against the Czech Republic. That was another turgid game. But I, but I take your point, sir. I take your point. That's been a, another episode of Mid-Atlantic. We're going to try and do this on, on a weekly basis. Forgive me if you've been listening to this um, on a podcast, if not live on Clubhouse. I have been a little bit uh, lazy recently, but I'm back onto a weekly schedule. So I'd like to say thank you to John Goodison, to Ab, to Duke, to Jennifer, to Coldfells, to Paul Dudridge, and to uh, Steve O'Neill for joining us and running the rule over US, UK, Iranian and Ethiopian affairs this week don't forget folks 
left of centre politics is right-thinking politics, but we hold out the hand of understanding and friendship to our brethren who are ranged against us politically on, on the right spectre of politics. We, we're not exclusive and we are ecumenical in terms of the voices that we allow here on Mid-Atlantic. So we'll see you all again in approximately seven days. Don't forget, if you are listening to the podcast, I know there's 2,000 of you that download this podcast whenever it comes out. Why don't you head on to Clubhouse, hit the little green icon, go find us on there, and it means that you can be in the audience. You can actually ask a question and maybe help to frame the debate. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.